What word picture comes to mind when you think about the holidays? Decorations? I know who of you have put up your Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving. Praying for you. My daughter got, one of my daughters, I have to remain safely anonymous here, was so upset at a radio station that was playing Christmas music. Already? You're supposed to wait till December. What do you think of when you think of the holidays? Certainly for some of us, it it evokes this idea of kind of really a tight-knit community, really our family and really close friends sitting around a table, and you almost think of um, like a Norman Rockwell painting, you know, where, you know, the the head of the family, whether that's dad or grandma, is sitting and all of her, you know, chickens have come home to roost, and they're sitting around the table, and, and it's just a heartwarming thing. I hope that that's a little bit of what you get to experience for Thanksgiving, that it's just good, that when you say um, Thanksgiving dinner, that it just kind of puts a, 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 a nice little smile on your face. However, I know that some of you have an uncle who will show up at your house because you, not mistakenly, you did it on purpose, but you invited him. And you can't wait for him to leave. Because it doesn't matter how much time you put into that recipe, the turkey's too dry. The stuffing is full of stale bread. Some of you who cook know, like, stuffing is stale bread. Um, You know, the uh, cranberries are too tart. Wow. Okay, uh, Mr. Cratchit, Mr. Complainer. Because even in the midst of something that kind of evokes just these warm feelings of hospitality and love and cheerfulness, there's always somebody who doesn't get it. You know, well, you know, the traffic was terrible. You know, the, the traffic ruined Thanksgiving. Well, people are traveling to see their family. You know, it happens. And so there's always that guy that just everything, everything can be glorious and beautiful, and he's, he's still going to complain. He just doesn't quite get it. And you know, something, whether it's the traffic or the meal, didn't turn out the way that they expected. And so even in the midst of what is a happy and glad circumstance, you know, because perhaps you've been this person one time, Everybody else, you you kind of feel like you're on the outside looking in. Everyone else is happy, joyful, glad, good, and you're kind of miserable on the inside. The same thing happens as we've continued through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew has been an incredible journey. And if we were doing like a topographical map, uh, it it would just be a constant skyrocket. Because you have all of the birth stuff the announcement and the angels and the glory. And then you have uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. And you just go, wow, everything Jesus is doing, he's, he's like the proverbial King Midas. He can do no wrong. He speaks, and his words are like words of gold. They're just incredible. And then he stops the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, 8 and 9, he's doing all these miracles. He does these 10 miracles in sequence. And each of them get grander and more significant. And so it's, it's mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. And then you get to Matthew chapter 11. And it plateaus. The meteoric rise in fame and acclaim that Jesus has experienced comes to a screeching halt. 
like that picture of the family gathered at Thanksgiving that should be a happy and glad occasion, we start to see that not everybody's excited about Jesus and his ministry. Some people are, quite frankly, perturbed and ticked off. And essentially, in chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew's Gospel, we see this whole theme of opposition and conflict and trouble. And the truth is, we hear this story of Jesus, and we hear of his wonderful teaching. We see his wonderful miracle working, and we should be going, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. And somebody goes, bah humbug. Right in the middle of the celebration. And so as we look at uh, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19, I think we're going to see something that's helpful. Because there are people, uh, John the Baptist specifically, who struggle with doubt. Are you really the person I told everybody I thought you were? And we get to see how Jesus never gives up. We just sang about it. With John the Baptist. How he, I'm hesitant to use this term, but how Jesus affirms and believes in John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist isn't quite sure what he believes in Jesus anymore. It's kind of a cool thing to see. And so when we stopped last week in Matthew chapter 10, everything had been going gangbusters for Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was about to franchise. You know, he, he commissioned his disciples to go out. Jesus had been doing all the preaching and healing. He commissioned his disciples to go out and do it, and he sends them out. And so that's where we end. And then chapter 11, verse 1 starts, When Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. There's no report about like, what, what, the, what, what, what the disciples had done. They just went, and it says Jesus went too. He took off teaching and preaching too. You can, it's kind of cool, because like, if Matthew was a disciple... Wouldn't you figure like he would have wrote, and we did really awesome stuff, and we did really cool stuff, and the demons ran away, and we healed people too, and I did a really awesome sermon in Capernaum that was really awesome, people talked about. There's none of that. It just kind of glosses over. Jesus sent them out, and they did their ministry namelessly. No credit, but that wasn't the point of it. And it says Jesus went out, and he did the same thing. He went out, and he taught, and he, taught and he uh, would preach. No report of the disciples' work. And so in spite... Of all of Jesus' awesome words and works, when we get to chapter 11, verse 2, we hear the brakes screeching in this meteoric rise to Jesus' ministry. Verse 2, when John the Baptist, not the disciple, when John the Baptist heard in prison, Matthew doesn't tell us that he was arrested, he just says John's in prison. When John the Baptist heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? One of the things that we have to come to grips with, first and foremost, is we have to learn how to deal with the reality of doubt. <clears throat> doubt happens. And listen, there's a, there's a difference. We think, uh, I, I hear people say this, Well, you know, I have my doubts sometimes. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? And I don't know how we have done this, but we have confused two terms. We know what denial is. I mean, we we heard last week, Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. There's a difference between denial over here 
and doubt over here. Doubt has questions, but it's searching for answers. Denial says, I got it all figured out. You're a sham. And so there's nothing wrong with doubt. And I think sometimes, especially those of us who are maybe a little more um, sensitive in our constitution, we go, well, you know, I'm a really bad Christian because I've doubted. But guess what? John the Baptist doubted. John the Baptist was the uh, mouthpiece for Jesus' beginning ministry. So we sit here and go, how is this guy who was a previous supporter, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, how is he now questioning him? Well, ask the question to yourself. What causes you to have doubts? Difficult situations, unmet expectations, limited perspective. There's probably some other things that we can add to that, but don't difficult circumstances like uh, being in prison make you go, all right, God, is this your plan? Um, I thought you came to bless the righteous and to beat up the wicked. Why am I in jail? Limited perspective. Unmet expectations. And all three of these things find their fruition in John the Baptist's life. Because he goes, listen, I know the Old Testament, but John's experience colored his interpretation. So he went, all right, I know this and I know this, but that can't be true because look where I'm at. He's been a faithful servant, but now his life is threatened and he's in prison. And it's really bad when you consider where John lived. Where did John live? The desert. And now he's in a what? A cell. As expansive a bedroom as you could imagine. And now confined to a dark and dingy prison. So he wants to go, um, Jesus, you were supposed to bless the righteous and punish the wicked. And I'm in jail. You've brought healing to a bunch, but you haven't brought any judgment. And what's worse, Jesus, is you've done all your work in West Virginia, not in Washington, D.C. Why in the world would you be in the backwoods healing insignificant nobodies when you you need to be challenging the establishment, meeting with strategic groups? Where are the senators? Where are the judges? You're wasting your talents. You're not sufficiently messianic. And your deeds, they're just not so mighty. John the Baptist, he's not saying that you're not the Christ. But he's saying, hey, did I get some things wrong? What's going on here? Thankfully, what does John do with his problems? He doesn't stew on them. He doesn't like, you know, have a powwow with his disciples. No, he takes his questions to Jesus. Now, he's locked up in prison. So what he does is he takes some of his disciples and he sends them to Jesus. And he says, hey, listen, what's going on here? So we move into our second point where we learn to appreciate Jesus' method for relieving our doubts. <clears throat> now, there are some people who say um, this kind of thought process for John the Baptist is unbecoming for him. So John's not the one who really had the doubts. John just voiced this stuff for the benefit of his disciples. That's not the case. Look what Jesus says when they come and they ask him the question. Verse 4. Jesus replied to them, the delegation, and he said, Go and report to John. If there was any kind of subterfuge, he would say, Hey guys, I know why you're coming. John sent you to me because I I need to help you all out, figure out who I am. He says, No, go and tell John. Report to John what you see and hear. And he gives two really simple answers to John. John says, Hey, 
I'm having a hard time here. Are you really the one that we thought you were? And Jesus says, oh yeah. And two things that you need to do. The first is that you need to trust the biblical revelation. You need to trust the biblical revelation. Verse 4, Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Now Jesus doesn't say this, but he's quoting scripture. And he's quoting from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. That's important. It's not on your, it's not on your uh, little um, PowerPoint thing here. Write those down in the margin and look them up because there's a very important addition and subtraction that Jesus makes to his quoting of Scripture. He doesn't say, now, John, if you turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. He doesn't because there was no chapter 35, verse 1 and 2. It's just the book of Isaiah. And so Jesus is talking in code language when he says, hey, um, the lame, the blind, the skin disease, the deaf, the poor, it's almost word for word verbatim what Isaiah 35 and 61 say. Here's the thing that's interesting. <clears throat> in Isaiah 61, it gives this whole list of uh, Jesus' first sermon. It says, the Spirit of the Lord was, was upon me to proclaim uh, God's goodness to those who were in prison. John would hear what Jesus is saying, and, and Jesus doesn't quote it. He doesn't say anything about the prison. He says, you know, the, the, the lame, the skin disease, the deaf, the poor... And he kind of conspicuously leaves the prisoner out. That would have been the one part of the prophecy John would have been most interested in. Yay, he rescues the prisoner! Does he do that? Yes. Does he do that at his first coming or does he do it at his second coming? Jesus will get it done. His rescue will be complete and it will be total. It just might not be right now. How many of you like that answer? He's never going to leave you. He's never going to give up. He's always going to love you. And oh yeah, your circumstances may really stink right now. So which is true? Your experience or God's truth? Biblical revelation or personal experience? And every single one of you needs to make a decision on which of those is going to trump the other. Is your experience going to trump biblical revelation? Or is what God's word says going to trump what you experience? And John struggled with that. Here's the addition. The subtraction was Jesus didn't say anything about the prisoner. John had to go, thanks, Jesus, for leaving that one out. You know, I'm mad I'm in prison. You don't say anything about the prisoner. Here's the addition that's cool. Is they talk about the deaf and they talk about the lame. They talk about the people with skin disease. There's nothing in the Old Testament about the dead being raised. So Jesus says, <clears throat> I'm loosely paraphrasing Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 here. But the blind see, the lame walk, people with skin disease get fixed, the deaf hear the poor told the good news, and the dead are raised. He says that the fulfillment is even better than the prophecy. The, the, the truth, what is happening, is even better than what the prophets predicted. His second answer, if his first answer is, man, trust the word. Hold on to biblical revelation. His second answer to John's question of doubt, the way that Jesus relieves his doubt, he says, trust the scriptures. He says, number two, joyfully submit. 
joyful submission. He says this in verse 6. He says, if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. That's a very gentle rebuke to John the Baptist. John, you're struggling with who I am, aren't you? Yeah. Don't be offended. You know what, John? I am fully aware that I don't meet your expectations. But John, can I ask you a question? Should I conform myself to your expectations, or should you conform your expectations to who I am? Let me tell you, if you're disappointed with Jesus, the problem is not Jesus. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He will be true to his word. We're making the statement that we should be committed to biblical revelation. And he's saying, you know what? Just submit to who I am. Because you know what will happen? You will be blessed. What's your option? If you don't joyfully submit to who Jesus is, life's going to be miserable. Because you're always going to think you could make a better decision than God, than God could. Yeah, he really fouled that one up. Stuck in traffic, driving for Thanksgiving for a while. Man, Grandma really she torched the turkey, you know. <laughs> you just start to second-guess everything. You become bitter. And he says, blessed is everyone who doesn't take offense at me. Well, apparently, as Jesus is having this conversation with John's delegation, there are people who overhear this, and um, they're ready to be done with John. You know, and John was faithful and saying, behold the lamb, and uh, he must increase, I must decrease. They're like, way to go, John. You know, pastor of the year. You know, woo-woo, we're going to make every month pastor appreciation month. John the Baptist, we're going to make John the Baptist bobblehead dolls. You know, get your John the, John the Baptist is my homeboy t-shirt. You know, John the Baptist is cool. Everything's good with John the Baptist. Oh, you know, are you the one or someone else? Oh, that John the Baptist, he's terrible. Fickle. It's like a middle school girl. What's he, what's he got? Has he got a little daisy? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. John the Baptist. Verse 7, as these men, John's delegation, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. There's people eavesdropping on the conversation with the disciples. And Jesus began to speak to the crowds, and he said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? You looking for a prophet in skinny jeans? You're not going to find it in John the Baptist. You look, those who wear soft clothes are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I assure you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, but if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Anyone who has ears should listen. Jesus didn't want to let the crowds get down on John. John had previously testified with excellence to who Jesus is. Jesus now testifies to John and to his character. And I think the point here that is important is that for us, when we think through the issue of dealing with people's doubts and learning from Christ's example, we cannot disown a weaker, or brother, a weaker brother or sister over one deviation. What has been the testimony of John's life? 
He's in prison for being faithful to Christ. Jesus is saying, you know what? His, his experience is coloring his interpretation. And I've already told him, blessed is he who does not stumble, who's not offended because of me. But you better cut him some slack. You better evaluate his whole life, not his low point. He says, we're not going to cut him off because he's made one mistake. And so he asks the question, what did you got to see? Do you see a reed blowing in the wind, something with no spine that is fragile and insecure and vacillating and windblown? He goes, listen, let's be honest, okay? John's having a bad time, but he's not a reed. He's a redwood. He's in jail because he's confronted adultery. Told the king to his face, you don't need to be sleeping with that woman. Your brother-in-law's wife. Which, you know, if you say that to a king, he can throw you in jail, which is what happened. He said, you go out for a fashion show? You're not going to see soft clothes and delicate clothes. He lives in the wilderness. He's like, he's like Daniel Boone. He's like animal skins. He's eating locusts and honey. He's rough and tumble. And he says two things. He says he's more than a prophet. Well, what is there that's more than a prophet? You know, in the Old Testament, you've got prophet, priest, and king. What's more than a prophet? He's not a king. John Baptist is not a king. He's not a priest. Here's the thing. He's a prophesied prophet. The Old Testament said a messenger would come. Before. There's no other prophet who's a prophesied prophet who's specifically told that they would come. He is the greatest in a long succession of prophets. And he points most unambiguously to Jesus. Can you find Jesus in the book of Isaiah? Absolutely. But if you've never read the book of Isaiah and this is your first day reading it, you might struggle to see exactly where Jesus is found. Can you find Jesus in Genesis? Can you find Jesus in Exodus? Absolutely. But you need to train yourself to kind of learn how the Bible's making allusions and good biblical interpretation. Is there any doubt where John the Baptist stood when it came to his testimony to Jesus? Look, there he is! Pointed to Jesus clearly. And for that reason, he said that he's more than a prophet. He's the greatest of all the prophets. And he says not only that, but in verse 11, John is the greatest born of women. Woman. John is the last of the Old Testament era. And he says, anyone that belongs to the kingdom of heaven has a greater privilege than John. We get to experience once and for all forgiveness. We get to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, immediate access to God. We have no confessional booth in our church. How in the world are you going to be forgiven of your sin? We don't have any priests on staff. There is no one that you need to go and ask to pray for for you, for you to be forgiven. You, through Christ, have immediate access to God the Father. That's an awesome privilege. That's not something that people in the Old Testament knew. We have a clearer perception of Jesus. And I love this because Jesus does not condemn John because of one momentary weakness. He says the most accurate perception of a man, the most true opinion, is based upon their entire life. That's a good word for us. And so he, he explains a little bit. He tries to help John understand his experience because John is not understanding his experience. And so in verses 12 through 15, <clears throat> Jesus goes into this whole spiel about the kingdom is uh, suffering and violent men try to get it. There's a lot of debate about how to interpret this. Many of you, if you have a good study Bible, there will be all kinds of footnotes on this verse. And uh, I think the best way to interpret this is to not see that the, how does it say it here, that the kingdom is suffering violence. That can actually be translated that the kingdom is advancing vigorously. 
And I think in, in the context of what he's talking about, about the lame being healed and the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the dead being raised, Jesus is definitely trying to say, guys, listen, the kingdom is on the move. The point is, yes, John, I am the Messiah. I am, I'm winning the war. It's not done yet. There's a long way to go. But you were right. You were right. We're just not finished yet. And so I think the best way to interpret this is that the kingdom is advancing vigorously, but that there are violent men who are trying to oppose it. Listen, there are businessmen who will come to church, not because they should come to church, but it's good for their business contacts. They they will use the church. If they can't beat the church, they'll use the church. This is the entire explanation for why John finds himself in prison right now. Violent men are opposed to the advance of the gospel, and they will do everything they can, even kill its messengers. They'll do it. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to help John to understand. John doesn't understand this. He's like, all right, you're supposed to bless the righteous, curse the wicked, and I'm in jail. And he's saying, you got to understand, man. People don't want a righteous savior. They want a, they want a political leader. They don't want me. They don't want a savior. They want someone to fix things. And John just doesn't grasp the point that there's going to be exertion, that there's going to be hardship, that there's going to be hard work to get into this kingdom. And so he says, guys, listen, you need to understand, this guy's like Elijah. He's not, Jesus is not talking about reincarnation. But when you stop and you compare Elijah and John the Baptist, they kind of look the same. They wore rough clothes. They lived in the desert. They both got in trouble because they opposed the political leaders of their day. Uh, Elijah stood up to Ahab and Jezebel and then ran for his life. He got discouraged and hid in a cave and God had to go to him. John the Baptist is in a cave. It's just called a prison because he stood up to Herod and his, his uh, live-in girlfriend, sister-in-law, and now he's in prison. So their, their mood, their manner, their melancholy, all of this was uh, pointing to the fact that, um, John, you're being opposed because you've done the right thing. You're paying a terrible price but it's worth it. Jesus says, hey, listen, if you've got ears to hear, you need to hear this. Who doesn't have ears to hear? You know, I'm, I'm kind of looking here real quick, and ladies, some of you have long hair, but I'm assuming under your braids, you've got ears. And so Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let, let him hear. What he's saying is, mere possession of the organs of hearing does not mean that you actually listen to anything. He's saying, John, listen, and y'all, Listen, don't get on John too much. And I think the point in all of this, in his defense of John, is, is this. And it's, it's kind of a cool thing. If John the Baptist is everything that Jesus has just said he is, he's a prophet, he's more than a prophet, he is the most distinguished, end-of-the-line prophet of all the prophets, he's the greatest person born of woman, he's amazing, he's, he's the real deal, he's all of this. He's Elijah's spirit reborn then who is Jesus? Because you remember, the only thing John is, is his messenger. So if John is all of these amazing things, who is Jesus? When he's talking to John personally, he says, don't be offended because of me. He's saying, John, I'm the Messiah. Now when he's defending John before these people that want to detract from him, he says, John's great. I'm greater. John's my messenger. And in verses 16 through 19, he concludes with, an interesting statement that I think is good for us. 
You know, when we head into uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and you're tempted to grumble and complain, to be the bah humbug guy at the table, okay? Um, moms who work so hard to get the perfect meal. Some of you will make your family come to the table while the food's t- too hot and everyone will burn their mouth on the first bite that they take. But you want everything to be perfect and you want to get everyone to the table quickly. What do you do when you have the, the bah humbug Bob sitting at your table? Well, in verses 16 through 19, Jesus says that our faith must be realistic enough to deal with discouragement. Our faith must be realistic enough to deal with discouragement. He warns us to be prepared for the fickle response of people. They'll like you today, John, but they won't like you tomorrow. It's exactly what John dealt with. You know, it's exactly what Jesus would deal with. Hosanna in the highest, crucify him. And so in verses 16 through 19, he concludes with this statement. He says, to what should I compare this generation? He gets done talking to the people that were mad at John. And Jesus kind of says, all right, listen, I'm just going to go off here a little bit. And you all get to hear it. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to each other. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a lament and you didn't mourn. They're playing a game. So, hey, let's play the wedding game. You ever see kids get together and play, play dress up? Let's play the wedding game. And you know what? Um, uh, she throws the veil down and she takes the dress off. She doesn't want to play. We're playing the wedding game. You've got to get dressed. Oh, you don't want to play the wedding game? Let's play the funeral game. Let's sing a dirge. Let's sing a lament. And you didn't sing? And he's almost saying that this generation is so fickle. They say they want this and then they don't do that. And if you don't play the game I want to play, then <laughs> not going to have it. And here's how Jesus applies it. <clears throat> To what should I compare this generation? They're like kids, fickle kids fighting in the marketplace over who gets to choose what game they're going to play. And he says, for John did not come eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at Jesus. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, yeah, but wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds. I love it here because he says, guys, listen, opposition and criticism is kind of part and parcel of the Christian life. If you're going to live the way Jesus wants you to live, somebody at some point is going to ask you a question for why you're so weird. You know, we had a chance to pray, sweet prayer, about God being glorified through our giving. Do you know that giving to the church makes absolutely no sense to someone who doesn't go to church? Some of you try to practice a biblical tithe, 10% of your income. You know, you know what your next-door neighbor would think about that? You're an idiot. I mean, you already give 20% to the government. Why would you give 10% to the church? And so we need to be prepared for opposition and criticism. And when John came, John's style of ministry, they go, John's too hard. He's too loud. He's yelling all the time. He's too fanatical. He's too alarmist. He's too austere. Do we have to dress like him if we're going to be a Christian? And then Jesus comes, and his style of ministry is completely different. He's not, he's not a weirdo in the woods. He's in the town with people. And he, he eats and drinks with people, and they go, you know what? Uh, Jesus is too soft. He's too normal. He's too social. He's not spiritual enough. He's not separate enough. He's not different enough. And you go, oh my goodness. You reject John the Baptist for all the things that he was, and Jesus is completely different. And you go, he's messed up. 
Here's the point. If the mode for you living your Christian life is this, you'll never be faithful to anything except other people's changing opinions. And so the truth is, when we talk about living for Christ through doubt and through discouragement, it's this. You can control your actions. You cannot control other people's reactions. There'll be some people who are thrilled. They are refreshed by the difference in how you live because you want to honor Christ as king. There are going to be some people who think you're a flaming idiot. What are you going to do in the midst of that? You have to choose who is going to be king in your heart. And it's either going to be God, it's going to be yourself, or it's going to be other people's opinions. So what I think is beautiful about this, Jesus, in one sense, at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 10, is at the pinnacle of his career. (coughs) Forbes 500, you know, top 10 list. He's got everything going on. And in the middle of all that comes to a screeching halt, this period through chapter 11 and 12, where there is conflict and opposition, and it intensifies. And it begins where? It begins with another believer. It begins with his first and strongest supporter, John the Baptist, his cousin. He says, are you really the one? And we get to see how our sovereign Savior, God in the flesh, deals with a discouraged soul. And he says, John, you're not denying me. You're doubting me. And there's a world of difference between the two. And we get to see how he responds to people who are weak in their faith. They're still in the faith, but they're weak in the faith. And he teaches us how to be gracious like him, to not disown and to discount people when they mess up. And he tells us to to pluck up, to act strong, to be like men, because discouragement is going to come. I don't know what kind of hole in the ground you've stuck your head in if you think you're not going to be discouraged. And Jesus here tells us, I am indeed the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one in the midst of all your discouragement and doubt. And so this week, as you sit at the table and you pray your prayer for Thanksgiving, can you thank God that he is sovereign even over your bad attitudes? Can you say that you're thankful for ways that he has not just saved you from sin, but saved you from your own self-pity and doubt. Well, I don't know, Jesus. Everything was going great last week. You were awesome last week. This week, you're just, eh, 50-50. He can save you from that. Not just from Satan and hell and your sin. He can save you from your doubt. If you'll take it to him. He knows it. He's got it all figured out already. The question is whether you're ready to admit it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being an all-sufficient Savior. You are not just a Savior who saves us from our sin. You are a Savior who saves us from ourself. And we are so tempted to see sin as something outside of us when it affects every part of our being, our mind, our emotions, our will. So God, I pray that as we go into Thanksgiving week, that we can just rejoice in how you gently restore 
erring brothers and sisters. And God, that's the story of all of us. We may not have erred in big ways this week, but we've erred. We've made mistakes. We have said you are Lord and not lived it out. So God, I pray that this portrait that we see of your son today will make us eager to come to you. The one who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, we pray that on this holiday, we will indeed know the rest of God because we have given our troubles and our doubts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.